Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Here at Popular Science, we write and read dozens of stories every week. And though many of the fun facts we stumble across during our research make it into an article, something always hits the cutting room floor. But we still want to share that information with you. So welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, a podcast from the editors at Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman, Popular Science's science editor. I'm Eleanor Cummins, our editorial assistant. And I'm Sarah Chardash, one of the assistant editors. So this is the podcast where we just literally talk about the weirdest things we learned this week. We'll start out by each pitching our weird fact or series of facts or Wikipedia spirals, as the case may be, and uh, decide which sounds the most exciting and start from there. And once we've all had time to spin our weird science yarns, we'll reconvene to decide which was actually the weirdest thing we all learned this week. A fight to the death for the most interesting science fact. (laughs) Yes. And then you can tell us we were all wrong on Twitter. Don't at me. (laughs) So my weird fact this week is uh, kind of just a weird series of facts that starts with the history of testing chili pepper hotness and ends with something really disturbing I learned about horses' butts. Is that just the teaser? We don't get to know. Yeah, no, no, that's the teaser. Wow. You won't, you don't get to hear more unless I win, so. Oh, God. Mine's so much more straightforward. I didn't have a teaser. All right, well, I do now. (laughs) My weirdest thing I learned this week involves babies being, uh, like, imperiled on, like, the very top floors of buildings all over the world um, for, like, 100 years as a a medical treatment. What? Wow, I know your fact already. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. Um, I don't have a teaser. I'm just going to go straight into it, and I'm going to hope that the fact is interesting enough you want to know more. Thomas Jefferson hoped that Lewis and Clark would find giant ground sloths out west. I do hope that, Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) Well, I want to hear more about giant ground sloths. Do I win? Do I get to go first? Yes. 
Okay, so I found this fact uh, because I wrote about giant ground sloths um, today, which is last Thursday, as you guys are listening to this. I wasn't really supposed to be talking about Thomas Jefferson, um, but all of my research begins on the Wikipedia page because I think Wikipedia is just a great like starting point for all of the weird random facts related tangentially to the thing that you're writing about and like you have to go verify them but it's an excellent starting point and there was just a casual mention on wikipedia about how there's a species of giant ground sloth that is named after thomas jefferson i'm gonna butcher the name megalonyx jeffersoni jeffersoni something like that um sounds like a really interesting startup (laughs) (laughs) megalonyx megalonyx is absolutely the name of startup (laughs) right now it exists already um so it's named after him because he he helped discover it because did you know that thomas jefferson helped to produce the first two side like paleontological papers about all of north america and that thomas jefferson is considered quote the founder of North American paleontology because I did not know that. I, I didn't either. That yeah. wasn't in Hamilton. No. <laughs> I think it's the worst for it, too. <laughs> if only Lynn manuel Miranda had done more research about sloths. Um, so, yeah, Jefferson uh, found... He didn't find the bones in a cave because he was a rich white man uh, back then. So someone else found bones in a cave and he managed to procure them. And he then studied them and presented the findings to the American Philosophical Society in 1797. Um, They thought it was a big cat at first, (laughs) because why would you expect a sloth to be that big? Um, But it it turned out to be a giant sloth species. And he didn't understand how extinction works, I guess, uh, (laughs) and hoped that he would find they would find giant ground sloths out west. Also, apparently, this was like a thing for founding fathers, that they wanted to promote the finding of very impressive giant animals in North America because apparently according to the theory of American degeneracy <laughs> which which is a legitimate theory that was just like basically used to argue why America was terrible and the continent of Europe was superior in every way and they felt that part of that was that we have like smaller bears <laughs> <laughs> Valid. <laughs> so they wanted they wanted to find like giant mastodons and giant sloths, just like they were hoping they were just sort of floating around there out in the West, and we would find them and we'd be able to prove once and for all that America has the biggest, the best of all of the things. And all they found was gold. Yeah. That's <laughs> rough. Wow. So yeah, that's my fact. That's so wild. I would love to buy my way to scientific fame. (laughs) That's the way to go. That's what Elon Musk is essentially doing now. You just kind of invest in the right places at the right time, and then you're the father of paleontology or whatever. I mean, as a society, we haven't really progressed that much farther against that model. Like Elon Musk wishes he could be the father of American paleontology. (laughs) He does. You don't know that he's not going to buy his way to that title. He's actually just boring for giant sloths. Yeah, so like, what do you think the over-under is on, on Thomas Jefferson actually doing literally any scientific analysis of that, I mean, that fossil? I guess I don't really know what constituted scientific mm. analysis back then, because I think it could have just been sort of looking at bones, <laughs> saying, like, this is probably a tibia, and so... Of a we, cat. Of a, <laughs> a really big cat. And then probably it was roughly nine feet tall. Like, apparently he was very into science. Like, he was more into science... Than politics, which same. 
He seemed into politics. Yeah. <laughs> think about how in just a little. I, when I was googling around, I found many articles about how into Mastodons Thomas Jefferson was. He apparently like pestered other founding fathers about like trying to get his hands on like Mastodon <laughs> teeth. That's so beautiful. Yeah. The least terrible thing I've ever heard about Thomas Jefferson, honestly. Yeah. I, I don't know. This, like, researching this gave me just, like, some sliver of hope that he was, like, a, a nice, interesting person in the night. I think about all the all the rest of his life. So I have another question. When, like, if this actually played out the way that he wanted and he sends, like, Lewis and Clark to their death, like, what <laughs> what does he imagine our first encounter with the giant American sloths is like? I'm not really sure. I mean, I don't know how much. Given that he thought it was a cat at first, I'm not sure. Maybe because, I mean, for all he knew, sloths were basically what sloths are today, which are, like, how would you get hurt? By a sloth. I mean, they have very sharp claws that I think are probably full of bacteria. But they're moving at you like, oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Eleanor is moving like a very sloth. Oh. You can't see this right now, but she's doing a great sloth. Still haven't made contact with Sarah. Oh. <laughs> it's exactly like that scene in Zootopia. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's taking, what he was But taking for. place in the 1700s. And nine feet tall. So he probably thought that sloths weren't that dangerous, uh, which as it turns out, probably they were at least very hard to kill, if not dangerous. But Mastodon seem pretty potentially dangerous, so yeah, maybe he just figured Lewis and Clark, they were going to go out there and they, they were probably going to die anyway. So. <laughs> so yeah, so you were recently looking at a study about humans interacting with actual live giant sloths, right? So like what, yeah, what did they find? Yeah, so the study was basically about humans tracking giant sloths because they found like literally big sloth footprints and then small human footprints inside of those giant footprints, which just seems like a little bit cartoonish to me. Um, but they literally found this. And so the, the authors of the paper were basically using that to argue that the humans were active, actively tracking the sloths in order to try to kill them um, because it's it's possible that humans hunted giant sloths mm, to extinction. Sloth meat. Yeah. <laughs> they, <laughs> I'm not sure how tough and stringy a giant sloth would be. It doesn't seem especially tasty. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, not everyone who... Um, who saw the paper agreed with it necessarily. Some people said, well, like, for all you know, these humans could have just found the prince and then just, like, like little children following in their parents' footsteps just been like, oh, look, we're, we've got our little footprints and the big footprints. Has anyone considered that the humans and sloths might have been best friends? That's possible. They did find evidence in the tracks that, like, when there were human tracks in the sloth footprints the sloths like took evasive action and Mm -hmm. had like sudden pivots and like were seemed to be trying to lose something unless they were just playing hide and seek i mean that's what happens when i hang out with my friends (laughs) evasive action (laughs) same (laughs) that's all i have about sloths i loved every minute of it thank you so much great we'll be back right after this um, yeah, so this is where we would have uh, an ad if we actually had real sponsors. Uh, so until then, we're going to do a little segment where we talk about our favorite science books or science-adjacent books, as it were, given the book that I will be recommending today. I'm recommending The Secret Lives of Color, which was recommended to me by Eleanor and <laughs> oh, is possibly no. also the book that she is going to recommend. She's oh, now Lord. staring at me. Throw down. Were you actually going to recommend this book? Go ahead. Book wreck. Um, 
the secret lives. I now I feel bad. You should explain what it is. We'll do. We'll we'll do co you want to tag team this. Yeah, we'll co <clears throat> recommend it. The Secret Lives of Color is essentially an encyclopedia of the histories of how we used to make colors. Uh, I think my favorite example is Indian Yellow, which was made from distilling yak's urine until a very uh, neon yellow color brought about by feeding the yaks a diet only of I think mangoes. Um, you could distill that into a cake and then sell it to painters who, despite the smell, really wanted a, a nice uh, you know yellow that kept its color. I the think- Secret Lives of Color. By Cassia St. Clair. <laughs> it's not as full of urine as it sounds from this recommendation, <laughs> but there is quite a lot of urine. Um, I, what I thought was really interesting about this book was um, how much of the history of art was filled with painters just trying to find good colors. I, I think we kind of forget how hard that was to come by for a lot of art history. And also how many of the pigments that people painted with don't look the same. So a like, significant portion of the art that you see in art museums does not look the way that the painter saw it when they painted it, which I just think is absolutely wild. There's like a whole subsection of museum science is not the right word. I'm sure there's a real term and that someone's going to tell me about it on Twitter. Um, But there's a whole subsection of museum science that's just about like restoring paintings and trying to figure out what they originally look like. So it's science adjacent even though it's not explicitly a science called heritage science. (laughs) Is it? (laughs) Okay. Took me a second. All right. This is why we're tag teaming up. We, we killed that. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, a great book. I can't top that Sarah and Eleanor collab. So let's just go back to the weird facts. I guess I'll go next. So I was looking into the um, Scoville scale, which is how you measure the spiciness of chili peppers. Because um, I was thinking about it as like, it's a really interesting way that we kind of measure pain objectively. Pain is a subjective thing, but we have this objective measurement of how hot a chili pepper is. So of course it's all like relative to how much you can tolerate. There are people who can handle stuff at the, you know, high end of the Scoville scale and people who like can't do peppers at all. But it's still like this really interesting attempt to actually measure what seems like this really nebulous thing. So I was looking at the history of it, and I found out that actually it was created by a pharmacist in 1912, this pharmacist named Wilbur Scoville, and he came up with an organoleptic test, which is what you call a test that relies on sensory organs. So today, the Scoville test like literally grinds up peppers and analyzes the amount of um, capsaicin, which is the chemical that makes them spicy. It interacts with receptors on your tongue that usually actually react to physical heat. So it basically tricks your body into thinking you're on fire, which is a really great evolutionary quirk for a plant to have if it doesn't like being eaten. But originally, it relied on human guinea pigs, which I just thought was so interesting. Um, And It worked by, uh, let's see, I actually have uh, from the original paper describing the process. Mix well one gram of the powdered uh, capsicum in 50 cc's of alcohol in a stoppered flask and macerate for 24 hours. Dilute 0.1 cc of the clear supernatant liquid with 140 cc's of a 10% solution of sugar in distilled water. Five cc's of this solution swallowed at once will produce a distinct sensation of pungency. (laughs) Um, A sensation of pungency. Yes, a sensation of pungency. Mm -hmm. And so basically what they did is they just continued diluting 
um, the samples of the pepper in sugar water more and more until people can detect them. And I was like, who was this panel of like five people who were repeatedly, uh, you know, trying hot peppers to try to like titrate um, pepper spiciness, which by the way, had nothing to do with eating peppers. He was trying to standardize this uh, muscle salve that his company made, uh, which because there was no standardization of uh, capsaicin levels, it had a tendency to maybe like burn people's skin <laughs> because it would be too strong. Not a so he was, he, Yeah, so he was figuring out a scale for that reason. He had no interest in eating hot peppers. This was before people did... He was on the Did, graham cracker diet. <laughs> he was almost certainly on the graham cracker diet. Yes, Wilbur Scoville from uh, Connecticut was absolutely on the graham cracker diet. <laughs> For sure. Diet. All I could find was that in his paper he referred to uh, students. So it was definitely just grad students. Grad students just had to drink hot pepper water uh, diluted with sugar to give us our first measurements of pepper spiciness. Which is how we still do science to this day. I was just going to say, like, over, under on whether we ever move on as a scientific community from just experimenting on, like, between graduate students and college students, like, that's just, that's got to be a huge percentage of all patient subjects, right? 400%. Yeah. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Grad students do terrible things in the name of science. It's true. Yeah. Grad students are the real heroes. Absolutely. <laughs> as our grad student clenches her fist triumphantly big thanks to our grad student production assistant Jess we love her thanks guys we would never make her eat peppers oh. <laughs> or, or like steady dilutions of peppers <laughs> um, so in researching this I came across some other weird stuff um, so I was looking at uh, basically relatives of uh, capsaicin that uh, also produce burning effects. And one of them is, um, well, first of all, the one that's hottest on the Scoville scale, it's, it's like 500, 500 to 1,000 times hotter than capsaicin. And uh, it's called uh, resinifera toxin, which is found in some plants. It can inflict a chemical burn in microscopic quantities. 10 grams of it is likely fatal to humans. One millionth of a gram can cause severe burning pain. Whoa. Wait, yeah. so what is this in? Um, so it's in a couple different plants. Uh, I'm blanking on the exact names now, but... I think Not ones we eat. No, no, no. Yeah. 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 So no, we two, would die. Two, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, no, these are plants that would, like, be considered toxic because of the okay. presence of this compound. Um oh. Yeah, and, you know, the spicy plants in general, it's like a really cool evolutionary strategy that they have for making themselves unattractive. And, you know, they, they've adapted to target these receptors on our mucous membranes and, well, on all of our skin, but especially sensitive on our mucous membranes to protect us from heat. Um, you know, obviously skin that's more delicate is going to need to be more sensitive to heat so that you're less likely to, you know, get horribly burned. If you put like a hot pan on your tongue, you would you know, want to really move that very quickly. Uh, so <laughs> definitely that experience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people will ask, like, why do we have uh, capsaicin receptors in our butts? And the real question... <laughs> a lot of people would ask that. <laughs> and the, the real question is, how did plants learn to mess with receptors that were already in our butts? That's... Wow, we are really asking the important questions on this podcast. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, any mucous membrane in your body should be very sensitive to heat because, like, 
<laughs> don't sit on a fire. Um, but yeah, these peppers just trick our bodies into thinking that we are inflamed. Are there any other animals that eat peppers for fun? Are we the only ones? I think we are the only ones that eat peppers for fun. I mean, I'm sure there are some oddballs out there. Monkeys like to party. Yeah, that's, that's true. true. Well, that's what I'm thinking, honestly. Um, certainly none that eat that uh, have tried to breed uh, peppers with, you know, millions of Scoville heat units just so that we can say we did and then, you know, try to... Uh, there's this concept called benign masochism, which is the idea that people enjoy things like eating ridiculously hot peppers because we have this drive to like do things that feel like they put us in danger, but don't actually put us in danger because it like is practice for when we're really in danger. So it's like the same reason you like going to scary movies or roller coasters. So like eating hot peppers is a thing that's like very physically upsetting and like gets all of your your heart pumping, your adrenaline racing, whatever. Sweating. Yeah. So much sweating. So much sweating. Yeah. Um, so maybe the reason there are so many idiots who go into like hot pepper eating contests or people who do dumb things like make videos of their colleagues eating the world's spiciest tortilla chip. <laughs> Those people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's it might be because we um, it's good practice to practice being in peril. So, okay, the thing with the horses' butts is <laughs> thank, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> I feel God in this chilies tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was looking up um, other compounds that are related to uh, to the ones in peppers. And gingerol, which is uh, what makes ginger spicy, uh, is an interesting one because it becomes less pungent when it's cooked, but actually becomes twice as pungent when it's dried. So then I found this thing about gingering horses. Gingering? <clears throat> gingering horses. It is uh, considered animal abuse in many parts of the world, as it should be. And in fact, at some uh, horse shows, they will swab the butts of horses to check for signs of gingering. But you apply an irritant, such as raw ginger, to the anus or vulva of the horse in order to make the horse liven up and carry their tail high. No! No, No, I know. And then, this gets worse. Um, So, as you said, Wikipedia, Sarah, is a great resource, and then you have to fact check. Um, And so, according to Wikipedia, a subset of the gingering culture in horses was that people would put a live eel... In in a horse's butt to make it act sprightly, and I tracked down the source, and there is a source, but it is a book written in 1785, mm. and then its follow up in 1788 called Volume Two, <laughs> called a Classical Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue. So I think this what? is just like the 18th century equivalent of UrbanDictionary.com. Wow! So I really want to believe that this guy named Francis Gross just made it up. Francis Gross is right. Um, But on the other hand, humans do put live eels in their butts periodically. I have a friend who studies eels. Oh, I thought Uh, you were going to say you have a friend who put an eel in his butt. (laughs) (laughs) That was close. Sorry, Ian, your secret's out. No. (laughs) I have a friend who studies eels, and for a while we had a running joke where every time one of these came up in the news, we would would send it to each other um, because... Every time stories about people putting eels in their butts? Yeah. People put so much stuff in their butts. It's true. They do, but I've been missing the eels. I'm in the wrong part of Google News, clearly. It's like a Are they alive? Upon insertion. Yeah. To specify. (laughs) 
Do you? This might be too much really detail. Bad. It can go very badly for everyone involved, do you put, especially the do eel. Do you put the head in first, or does the head sort of stick out? I think generally when it works, it's because the head goes in first. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but I guess they don't really go backwards, huh? No, yeah. They're well, forward swimmers. Yeah. And they're really, they're pure muscle. It's just a, it's just a, it's a thing that happens when groups of men get drunk in places where there are eels. Wow. It's like, so the, it, this was a takeout from uh, <laughs> like they edited it out of hangover or something. It's horrifying. Yeah. yeah truly horrifying. And you really um, gingered him last night. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be an urban dictionary tomorrow if it's not already. <laughs> I, I feel like I've learned a lot, not just about peppers and um, about uh, this guy Wilbur, but also uh, about how long men have been turning gross jokes into cultural memes. Apparently, since wow. 1785, at least. At least, definitely before then. Good lord. I just never imagined we were going down this path when we began the podcast. But now that we're here, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm curious to know more about these these receptors in your butt. So obviously, when, when, when you're a gingered, that doesn't feel great. But when you eat spicy food... Can that also cause this like sim- a similar reaction the on the end. way out? The oh yeah, yeah. Ab- yeah, absolutely. Okay, and in fact, um, when you eat the the spiciest pepper in the world, which is like over a million Scoville heat units at this point, uh, the Carolina Reaper, people who eat it often say that they can feel it periodically all the way down. <laughs> so like. Not just at the beginning and the end, but in the middle. When some of our coworkers did a video about eating chips that were dusted with Carolina Reaper uh, concentrate or whatever, um, one of them told me that like she eats a lot of spicy food, but the thing that really was new and weird and different for her was that she could feel it like in her intestines. That's so wild. What a way to learn about yourself. You know? <laughs> How fast your digestive tract moves along. It's like a little tracker. Yeah. But um, milk does help uh, help neutralize things. And in fact, Wilbur Scoville uh, often gets credit for being the first person to put that down in, in the literature. Um, this, so interesting. This guy Wilbur like did not intend to become famous for pepper heat he like was a druggist and a pharmacist and he wrote something about how to compound medicines and he was kind of a science journalist he edited the new england druggist among other publications um so like pour one out for wow milk yes pour Pour one milk milk out yeah (laughs) just one glass round of round of milk for me and the boys (laughs) Good lord, I re- I feel bad for those horses. Me too. I'm gonna feel bad for those horses for probably forever. So was it like dried ginger? That was the deal. I'm I think pic- it was I'm like picturing that crystallized oil. ginger like from Trader Joe's, <laughs> which I actually love. <laughs> They're our sponsor. <laughs> this episode brought to you by Trader Joe's. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I don't know. I think I think it was like oils or like pieces of ginger art. It's like a thing. Like don't. Don't go down this internet rabbit hole if you don't <laughs> feel like you know what's coming. Because, like, there's a lot there. Rachel's seen, about some, ginger seen some things. <laughs> so, <laughs> reporting that's live. That's why we're here. We go down the rabbit hole for you. We report back from the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> from the bottom. From the very bottom, which is from gingering horses' butts. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break. Don't put any ginger up your butt while we're gone. <laughs> 
welcome back. <laughs> I feel like I we're have, on NPR. Eleanor's opening her file, which is literally labeled top secret. Top secret. Using a silver Sharpie, the most important Sharpie. Okay. <laughs> the file's opening, but plot twist, the photos are covered in post-its for a big reveal. <laughs> well, I just there want, are layers to this. I just I love want vis- the listeners to know that she does have post-its, but they are see-through, so... <laughs> They're not super effective. I love All visual right. aids on podcasts. Yeah, you my guys, favorite is when podcast hosts <laughs> reference things you can't see. That's what I'm here for. All right. What I want doing? Yeah, I want you guys to imagine with me for a moment that it is <clears throat> 1906, and we're only three blocks away from the Pop Psy office, New York City, East 36th Street, the home of Eleanor Roosevelt, my namesake. <laughs> do you have an exact address for us? Or? I do not. Okay. That would be inappropriate. <laughs> She don't dox Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> do not do it. Right. So sorry. She builds a small cage, hangs it out the window of her townhome, puts her baby inside. The neighbors <laughs> call the cops. <laughs> I have just unveiled a photo that you cannot see. It'll be on Twitter. Um, of a baby in a cage um, on like what I would say is maybe, you know, the 10th floor of an apartment building. For a very long time, this was a very popular way of um, airing children. <laughs> children needed they, to be aired, not because they smelled. So, that they would be do. true. They, they do. do. That would be an accurate use of airing. Yeah. This was because it was believed that exposing your child to uh, cold air would make them hardier and help them grow and stay healthy. So this uh, idea was first proposed um, in the late 19th century by a doctor of great renown who... We're on to page two now, just so that all the listeners are following along. We are. In the care and feeding of children, um, this guy, he's like, you know what you need to do? To renew and purify the blood, you need to put your baby outside. And he does not suggest doing it in a chicken coop. He's like, you know, take him for a walk. Treat them well. Make sure that they're, you know, they get out there and they, quote, toughen up the babies and make them better able to withstand common colds. He also suggests maybe a cold water bath because who hasn't grown from that kind of an experience? (laughs) The thing is, uh, you know, at this time, the United States is rapidly urbanizing. People have less space than ever. Even Eleanor Roosevelt in her townhome (laughs) just can't find a place to take her baby outside. So they decide that the solution is to build, um, you know, coops. And a lot of people, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt included, just sort of do it on their own, makeshift. Um, But in 1922... Uh, Emma Reed of Spokane, Washington, just two hours from where I grew up. This is a local story. (laughs) She applies for a patent on a portable baby cage that becomes world famous and is used as late as the 1950s to air your baby. What I find fascinating about this is not only is it a very bizarre kind of example of how tight everyone felt their living quarters were as, as the world was urbanizing, but also like this fascination and like conviction that people had that like air was just the cure all mm-hmm. and that you needed to put your babies out there toughen them up um and that you know like if you expose them to the elements they would be hardier um and that you know air was the the way to fix it um <coughs> and and that is the weirdest thing that i i found out about it's kind of weird like given how polluted our world has been <laughs> since the Industrial Revolution, that they felt that like that good, good city air was going to do the babies a lot of good. Yeah, mm-hmm. I feel personally, having walked in the same neighborhood we're talking about, like the air is 
extremely bad for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think our I think our filtered office air is probably healthier than airing your baby would have been at that time. Yeah, definitely. And this was like also the alternative to just opening a window, <laughs> which is also really wild to me. Like that was an option one suggested in you know the the air quotes literature um, on this topic, but people were just like, no, we have to go even farther and suspend them out there. So there are all these photos if you Google, you know, like baby air cage. <laughs> There are just all of these photos of people who just like put out often their naked infants out on, you know, these little ledges because uh, obviously you didn't want to be protected from the elements if the whole point was to make air the those little butts. You yeah. Well, it's you all know, about butts today. Your genitalia need air. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't want them to overheat, so <laughs> got to stick them right out there. I have I have three thoughts. First first thought, love it when old timey doctors talk about purifying the blood. Definitely doesn't sound like a potentially racist dog whistle at all. Second, uh, I'm pretty sure there are still countries and cultures where like airing babies is a thing. I remember reading something a while back about um, somewhere in Scandinavia where like it's still a tradition to like when you're going on your like afternoon stroll on the weekend because people actually have lives in other countries. Um, you like park your baby stroller outside. The, like, cafe that you're going into for your fika or whatever. And the whole idea is that your baby's cold outside. Like, that's the point. Because they're getting a nice uh, fortifying nap out in the open air. Um, And then my third thought is, uh, you know, as to your point about how we could have just opened up windows, is it maybe that Eleanor Roosevelt just hated her baby? (laughs) And perhaps... Uh, that <laughs> that there were there were many people uh, who in fact just wanted to not deal with their children and so were like mm, could put them in a playpen but what if it was not in my home I mean are we not considering the fact that maybe the baby air cages were just the the past equivalent of sticking your kid in front of the TV mm. just sort of <laughs> out of the way fight mom, with a needs a, mom needs a nap and so you're just gonna go in your air cage get a lawyer I mean that's entirely possible I, I don't know anything about Eleanor Roosevelt's relationship <laughs> with her children but I do know she was a human rights advocate so I, I hope that it's it's not an experiment in in dealing with your kids but uh, yeah I, I was also reading about the um, the situation in like yeah, Scandinavian countries where they not only feel like it's very valuable but also also that it's, you know, safe to just leave your kid, like, you know, in a little lineup of children, because this is just, like, what happens. You can take a nap out there. That sounds relaxing as a parent. I'm not a parent, but I would imagine. <laughs> I imagine abandoning your child, child outside is much more relaxing than to bring them into the coffee shop. Yeah. yeah. Also, a nicer coffee shop environment for the people without children. Mm-hmm. Just putting that out there. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like this really underscores just the general trend in America that we're way too protective of our children. Because yeah. if Scandinavians, where it is much colder, are leaving their babies outside, I think probably their we could... Their babies are clothed, right? <laughs> well, I, I, okay. think so. I would I hope mean, so. I, I guess that's probably... I think they're, like, quite bundled up because it's, like, actually yeah. cold, not, like, New York City fall afternoon cold. I um, There are definitely a lot of, like, outdoor preschools now, it, like, all over the U.S., including in places that get cold in the winter it is a growing trend for you know people who can afford to spend a lot of money to send their kids to school yeah who are increasingly choosing these programs that 
like emphasize time outside or even spend all their time outside. And, like periodically I see these stories and like, what do we do in the winter? They wear coats like they're kids, <laughs> not porcelain dolls. Mm. Yeah, I think that definitely the thing that was so shocking about it and why this still sort of, like, comes up every now and then is just the suspension aspect <laughs> yeah. of it, you know? That like, is, there, you should absolutely... That's another level of danger to it. You should take your kids outside. I think that that's, <laughs> that's a good parenting. Just maybe don't hang them I out don't the know. window. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a fair point. I'm also, you know, I'm curious about how many accidents there were. None reported, to my knowledge. Mm. People knew how to set up a chicken coop, I guess. <laughs> Out the window. DIY. We've lost. Well, maybe this is like, you know, elevators. I was terrified of elevators as a kid. Lots of people are scared of elevators. But, like, pretty much no one has ever died in an elevator except a long time ago. A, like, biplane crashed into the Empire State Building. And one of the elevators malfunctioned and did kill a few people. But that's, like, the only time anyone's ever died in an elevator because the elevator malfunctioned. Other than repair wow. people. It's in his own episode. <laughs> yeah. Shoot. I should say that for the next episode. Darn. Okay, so let's take a vote about which story was actually the weirdest thing we learned this week. Ground sloths. Wow. Rachel I and Eleanor votes. raising their hands. So I guess uh, that wins. Wow. Who were you going to vote for? I was going to vote for gingering. <laughs> that, was, that was a wild ride. Yeah. <laughs> well, you I know. I didn't expect it to end that way. So I think what really got me about that. Fact, yeah. fact adventure. Wikipedia is a is a great place to go fact ad- adventuring, especially if you uh, you know trust but verify your Wikipedia sources, because sometimes the source of the fact is the greatest story. Yeah, I think Wikipedia is underappreciated just for being a place where people want to put the random facts that they have learned online, and mm-hmm. so you end up with this these throwaway lines in Wikipedia articles that lead you down fascinating strange rabbit holes because someone once learned it and wanted to prove that they knew something on the internet and we can harness that power for good yeah i love sloths just because first of all i love sloths uh second of all i just love that i loved that uh america was supposed to be uh less cool than europe because of the size of our bears etc and that we thought we could fix it by just hunting down the bigger animals which feels very american to me it does and we've kind of continued the tradition of just having sort of the the biggest the loudest (laughs) things and hoping that that makes us the best it all goes back to our insecurities about the size of our bears the theory of american degeneracy yeah yeah our poor bears. We have pretty big bears, though, let's be honest. Yeah. And also, it's like, it's not the size of the bear. No, it's, it's the size of the heart in the bear. Oh, that's Aww. true. Well, on that note, the weirdest thing I learned this week is a podcast by Popular Science. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And make sure to buy some of our t-shirts from popsci.threadless.com. Our theme music, which you're hearing right now, was produced by Billy Cadden. Our editor is Jason Letterman. If you have any questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, you can tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, 
it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.